Generative AI might just be a feature. Crypto is back, baby. The CEO that wasn't real and the state of Substack's Nazi problem. All that and more coming up right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high quality leads, fast closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition, where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed and nuanced format. We have a very big show today covering some massive topics from generative AI to crypto and, of course, the travails of Substack. Here, as always, is Ranjan Roy from Margins. Ranjan, welcome. How are you doing? It's 2024, and crypto and generative AI remain uh, top of mind, but I'm excited to get into it. We'll debate whether crypto and AI are two sides of the same coin or not, as some people are talking about. But first, let's get right into the generative AI discussion. Because, and let me start with this post from Fred Wilson, who runs uh, uh, Union Square Partners, a venture venture capital firm. Um, he says, we're moving into the application era of AI. And this is from his prediction post for 2024. While in 2023, everyone was rightly focused on the large language models like OpenAI, Anthropic, Gemini, Llama, etc. We will now see AI-first applications emerge in 2024 that will start to move the focus and the conversation up the stack. And we will see legacy applications embrace AI to make their products better and to remain competitive with the AI-first disruptors. So I agree pretty strongly with the second half of Fred's take here, but not necessarily with the first half, because it does seem to me, and we're going to go through some examples here, that generative AI in the near term, at least, is going to be an add-on or a bolt-on to, to existing products, maybe just a feature. And we're going to, we're not, you know, we came out with ChatGPT. That was the big application. It was like, oh, the age of AI application is here, but we haven't seen any since then. So what do you think? Is AI, generative AI going to be an, an application itself or an add-on? I think generative AI presents a new paradigm where we can't cleanly separate out features and, you know, pure applications. And, and the reason I think this is because Generative AI, I think it will and should show up as a feature. There's news around Robin AI's legal co-pilot getting $26 million in venture. Like this idea, and again, legal documentation in the whole legal field feels to me like the most ripe for disruption field that exists. So I think we'll start out where existing companies and products essentially bolt on generative AI features, but I think then generative AI changes the entire way those features work. The example I always go back to is when Benedict Evans, I remember, had written that, you know, right now Microsoft is approaching generative AI as an add-on to Excel, but what if generative AI completely rethinks the way we think about spreadsheets at all? And I do think it will, and maybe Microsoft will guide us in that direction and we'll do it still in Excel and it'll look differently. But I think generative AI is going to start as a feature but end up transforming all these applications. Right, and the question is what that timeline might look like. Because if you think about the near term, everything that we've seen, right, ChatGPT comes out in November, 2022. We're sitting here in January, 2024. And we're not anywhere close to that reimagination of Excel. Like, this is what it seems like it was going to look like to me, whether it's this uh, thing, this Robin AI. And by the way, so what you do with Robin AI is it's uh, a Microsoft Word add-in. And this company that's, you know, just got $26 million in funding and $43 million total. 
and they use it. You can use it to create contracts in minutes. You can review. This is um, this is an article talking about the funding. I think it's from TechCrunch. Review existing contracts using plain language prompts and identify and propose edits. They say that it reduces the time to create contracts by eighty percent, and it reduces cost by seventy five percent. So it's a it's a copilot, really. Like the idea, and by the way, that's like. You know, almost obvious that there's been this language copilot around AI, which basically says this is going to be something that helps you with the stuff that you're doing, you know, uh, currently and not reinventing what you're doing. I'm really on the side of this, you know, assistive or this feature part of generative AI. I don't see it reinventing things like Excel or even search yet. So here's why I think this could be different. And in terms of timeline, what I'm about to say is definitely not happening in the next year or two, but the whole point of a contract always was, and for anyone, you run your own business now, I've run my own business, like, it was always the most painful thing, especially when you're a solo entrepreneur of, like, trying to sift through legalese and feeling scared about these things, and, like, like all those words on those pap- on the, that piece of paper are some kind of, essentially, a defense mechanism. It's some kind of programming that creates that idea, but once that stuff essentially becomes automated, the whole point of what a contract looks like changes. And maybe this is a little out there, but but again, it's like all those words are on the, the piece of paper to fit a specific way that we do business and people read, humans read that piece of paper and try to make a judgment around that. But if all that stuff is essentially programmed and being automated anyway, then why do you even need a written contract? So Robin AI, you know, and again, I don't know what that looks like in the future, but, and I've thought about this with a lot of content that like, you already see it when an SEO driven article gets abstracted down to a Google snippet. We never really needed that article to begin with. I don't think we need a lot of this contract language. It's all just been there because it's been built in a certain way. Right, and they basically like there's been talk about proof of work, and we might cover. Yeah, this I don't, we'll crypto get into side. crypto. Right, that was in the that sh- that was supposed to take care of this with smart contracts by now. It hasn't, but I, yeah, I went through that whole thing and didn't even say smart contract. But. Yeah, wow, very impressive. Well, you'll have plenty of opportunity coming up, but it is interesting that even if it is a feature, right, it can change things, and you know it sort of goes back and it can reshuffle the competitive balance of different applications and fields uh, and maybe even the the machinations in which business is done in certain fields. And I kind of go back to the Snapchat Plus example, which we talked about a little bit last week where I made this bold claim. And I just wrote about this in Big Technology, thanks to your nudging actually, about how this is like the first hit generative AI uh, product after ChatGPT. And the point is you go to Snapchat not necessarily. And by the way, I re-downloaded Snapchat this week, and I've been playing around with it. I, it's actually I got a notification. Your friend Alex Kentwitz is on Snapchat. Yeah, <laughs> this has really been a, a week of reawakening for me in terms of a few apps that I haven't it's used in a while. Year. It's Snapchat a new year. Snapchat and Coinbase, and we'll get to Coinbase in a minute. But um, but yeah, it's it's a super fun app, and you don't come to use the AI features like you wouldn't go to use the My AI bot. Like you would go to use a chat GPT, you won't, but they have that, they have uh, image generation, they have image expansion, which, you know, helps you figure out what's uh, outside of the frame, what the AI thinks is outside of the frame and dreams, which you take a bunch of selfies and it puts you in these dream scenarios like old Hollywood or a movie poster uh, or an alternative universe. And they're actually like quite good. And the thing is that it just enhances the experience. It doesn't reinvent Snapchat, 
What it does is it makes everything you do on Snapchat better. And that's why it's worth the $3.99 a month. Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly it, that it starts as a feature. But even if you think about it, like disappearing messages on Snapchat was a feature, but it changed the way people message. It changed even sending photos that in the past, sending a photo as a means of communication, it needed to be a quote unquote good photo. But once that disappearing feature came in, it completely changed the entire paradigm of communication. And obviously that sounds a little grandiose, but I think it did, that people no longer felt like a photo was this like, uh, you know, eternal thing that's important and has to look good. It was just, this is happening right now. And instead of writing it, I'll send you a photo. So that's why I think what they're doing and making generative AI accessible, I think is going to totally change the way people communicate. And that'll happen across whether they get it, whether other whether Meta comes in and figures this out on Messenger. I think it will change the way people do things. Again, when you have an idea in your head, I think it was Rex Woodbury, if you read him, he said generative AI, it's an engine of imagination. And that stuck with me. Is that like you have a thought in your head now, instead of describing it to someone, you just show it to them, spin up a photo and send it to them. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And another thing that might happen here is that the feature aspect of generative AI might pave the way for people to use these products in those transformative ways. You get them, it gets people comfortable with the idea of using it. And then all of a sudden it paves the way for them to start using completely different and transformative type of technology. And, um, and you actually, you know, it's kind of funny. Like I made this big proclamation in our uh, document to prep for the show saying it's just a feature. And then you drop a story in saying that actually there's funding coming in from Jeff Bezos for a product that will try to revolutionize search through generative AI and not just bolt it on. And I was like, dang, like the timing that you get right to make this counterpoint is, is so perfect, but it is very interesting. So what is the perplexity? So perplex, perplexity AI is a standalone app that essentially is trying to reimagine search in the age of generative AI. And, you know, and it's very good. And it's definitely been a buzzy on Twitter type thing, but it's, you know, Jeff Bezos just invested into it. But it's basically, you know, you ask it the question as though you're talking to ChatGPT, but the format it gives you, one of the things I really like is it's a lot more citation-based. ChatGPT, you get essentially a wall of text. Perplexity is very good about, you know, structuring the information that's underlying that which Bard tries to do, but we I don't even want to talk about Bard. My last few <laughs> queries have been so bad. Bard has really gone um, downhill for you, Ron John. It's it. I sorry, just very quick rant. It got quotes about. I asked, what are some famous quotes from George Washington? It made <laughs> them up. Yeah. It made up, I actually went through, and this is, this is what I do with my time. It gave me 10 quotes and it three of them did not exist. How do you hallucinate quotes from George Washington? Like, I don't it's know. It's pretty bad. Know, Google, Sundar, yeah. if you're listening, get it together, please. We're rooting for you a little bit. But perplexity. Um, so again, <laughs> reimagining search a lot of traction and, and and I have been using it a lot in so many queries that you start you realize that if you're not hoping to necessarily end up on a website even though it can direct you to a website and just get good information but if you need to click out 
it's already doing it. And it does it in a very clean format. The information from everything I've tried is very good. So it's just what it looks like and how search can act. I think it's it's a reminder, and especially as search has degraded over the last number of years and the top half of your search results screen are ads, I think like it's it's time for to reimagine it and they're they're starting to. So you use perplexity. I feel like after this discussion, I'm going to have to download yet another app because it sounds interesting <laughs> to me. Um, are you using it to replace search? How's your experience been with it? Yeah, so uh, definitely to replace search. And I, I had already started with the chat GPT iOS app using it to replace basic search queries. Again, if I'm like, if I'm looking for a restaurant or looking for something very up to the moment, I definitely, even though Bard should do it, I do not trust it. Um, perplexity. So it's more evergreen information. It's definitely my starting point. And, and again, it just presents things in such a better way than search does. Yeah. So first of all, I'm intrigued by the idea that there are companies that are trying to reinvent search already through generative AI and Jeff Bezos is investing. So it gives me, you know, at least some indication that this could be real. Another thing that happened in this story, as I read down, jumped out at me, which is that it's being invested in by top Google people, including Susan, well, Susan Wojcicki, who's no longer the um, CEO of YouTube, but the former YouTube CEO, and Jeff Dean, who's a senior vice president on AI Wait, at Jeff Google. Jeff Dean is investing in perplexity? Yeah. They, this is from the Wall Street Journal. They both made personal investments before the recent round of funding. I mean, this is, that, I don't understand how that happens. Sundar, get your house in order, man. <laughs> Come on. I mean, it is... AI search, how do you have the guy working on AI in a search company invest in a competitor? I didn't even know that that was half possible. That cannot be a lie, Sundar. Come on, man. But yeah, yeah, no, this is, it, it is. And what, another very interesting thing, though. So, so I've been using Perplexity a few months. So Microsoft just launched an iOS app for Copilot. And it's interesting because you had already talked about I think from a branding standpoint, and I don't know if they're going to be able to own the term, even maybe from a copyright perspective, but like I agree, Copilot is the best way to describe this technology to most people. And the fact that that's what they call it and the app and the feature and all their existing pieces of software. But so as I've been talking up perplexity, I've played with Copilot for the last week and it's pretty much as good and it does things in almost the exact same way. And yeah, so it's excellent. Yeah, this is what yeah. I've been saying on the show for for months at this point that Bing I am boy. a Bing boy, and it's now called Copilot. But Bing Chat is excellent. Yeah, and okay, I guess previously Bing Chat one had, and I remember at first they made you like download Microsoft Edge, which I did not want to do. Um, but it's even again the the I guess this is a reminder that. Like user interface and all of these things matters so much. I've all, I've always believed ChatGPT's greatest trick was the fact that it kind of streams the letters and pretends it's writing to you rather than, even though if you ever use the API, it can return it as a block of text in far less time, but it creates the illusion of thinking happening. And so you, you, user experience and interface definitely matter in all of these. And, and the thing is, Copilot is good. It's, it's, a little, it's a little more crowded and busy than Perplexity, and, uh, but it's still very good. And again, the way they present all the information. But, but I think this also gets us back into the question of 
are these heavily funded buzzy startups what chance like how do they fight against microsoft and google and apple and whoever else because again here you have the buzz one of the buzziest startups in the valley funded by bezos and even google's own ai search people and yet copilot basically can replicate the the quality at least from what i've seen in, in almost the exact same ui right away does that mean they just kind of disappear as Microsoft pushes Copilot across every word in Excel and Office user? Exactly. I mean, so this is from the TechCrunch story. It says, with Copilot, you're getting access to OpenAI's GPT-4 technology for free, which is pretty significant because OpenAI's GPT app runs GPT-3.5 technology and charges for access to GPT-4. You also get access to Dolly 3 for free. So it really is quite remarkable that Microsoft, which has put all this money into OpenAI, is effectively offering something better for cheaper, for free. Sorry, that, that you're right. That's actually a far more salient point. Like, how is what does that mean in this whole drama that OpenAI is majority of their revenue, vast majority, and we've talked about consumer versus enterprise a lot, is consumer in ChatGPT Plus for 20 bucks a month. And if I can get that free on Microsoft Copilot right now, like for them to do that to their own investment, does are they doing that because they've lost faith after the whole oh, Altman drama? That is interesting. I mean, there yeah, was always going to be tension in this partnership, always, right? They're offering similar products. ChatGPT is, you know, potentially competing with some Microsoft products. But the fact that, that Microsoft is now offering such a competitive product i don't know ranjan it seems to me like there's going to be more tension between these two companies yeah it's not just a competitive product it's a, and again if you use it's the two, product better it's, and free. it's, it, it's <laughs> the the same product that and it's open ai's entire revenue stream for free Yes. Uh, big, big techs. Big tech is still playing the big tech game well i feel like if you off if you spend all that money and you get 49% of OpenAI's revenue, but you don't own any of OpenAI, which is the case for Microsoft, you got to find a way. And this might be the way. find a way. Yep. Yep. So let's, let's go back to our friend, uh, Fred Wilson, who in his 2023 post, uh, talking about the age of AI application, is also talking about how we're going to see a big year for crypto and Web3. And... For a while, I thought like, okay, we're not going to hear about Web3 anymore. You have the Sam Bankman-Fried scam and everybody starts to, has gotten wise to the fact that this technology is um, largely overpromised and was pushed by many hucksters. But we're starting to see the return of quote unquote serious people talking about Web3 again. And Wilson says that uh, 2023 was the year Web3 held its ground. Okay, that's a very interesting description of what happened. And 2024 will be the year that regulators and lawmakers come to terms with AI. He continues, AI developed for over 40 years before its coming out party. I think it will take Web3 less than half of that time. Satoshi gave us a playbook to build decentralized, a decentralized internet stack back in 2008. And I feel quite confident that we will have massive mainstream applications running on this decentralized stack well before 2028. I think we will see mainstream decentralized applications emerge in 2024 as we now have inexpensive and fast transactions and simpler user interfaces and this is where he says ai and web3 are two sides of the same coin 
AI will help make Web3 usable for mainstream applications, and Web3 will help us trust AI. Together, they will lead to a more powerful, more resilient, more trusted, and more equitable internet. Ranjan, we've been talking about how like AI is not Web3 because it has actual use cases. Is it the case that Web3 is just going to take a little bit more time to get there? Or is this sort of the last gasp from you know boosters of a technology that have a lot of money in it and are desperately trying to make it happen? I mean, it feels a bit like every other, every industry and company has tried to put AI in its name or company description. And that sentence to me felt, it starts to feel a little bit. The part that I definitely took issue with is that AI took 40 years and Web3 will only be half that because we started in 2008. One thing with crypto is I remember hearing endlessly, this is like the internet in 1994. This is like the internet in 1970 already. Like anything to try to justify the lack of a killer use case or any kind of use case, what are we now 15, 16 years into it? So I think trying to almost brag that the time scale will be halved for this relative to AI, I think is a bit disingenuous. The only thing based on what we said earlier, the where he says Web3 will help us trust AI, there still is this massive trust gap that will only get worse with generative AI and provenance and context will become more important than ever. And right now, it's funny because like, you know, is this image real or not? Who made this image? These are the exact questions that Web3 has always promised us it can answer. And also I keep saying Web3, buying into the marketing term, let's call it crypto or, you know, blockchain. I think actually the greatest rebranding ever was blockchain into Web3 because everyone got tired of blockchain as a term. But that's what it was put. That's what it is supposed to do. Like, and it should be doing that already. Like the idea that there's not a mid-journey plugin a blockchain slash Web3 plugin that tells you who made what, when it was made, what the prompt was, whatever else. I, I, again, the idea that we're going to see that in 2024 when nothing has happened on that side, I think is wishful thinking. But I also think at least as the promise is written, I mean, it should help us there. So uh, here's another place where I take issue with, with Wilson, and that's him saying that it took 40 years for AI to have its coming out party. Well, all along the way, AI has had real use cases that may not have been generative AI, but computer vision and machine machine learning rankings, um, natural language processing, all this stuff has been used to power everything from um, translations to things like Google Photos, figuring out even a self-driving cars. Like this is a already in prime time technology that just took another leap forward. Whereas with Web3, you're just not quite there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a, that's a good point that you're right. He almost equate, he equates AI and Web3, not generative AI specifically. And AI, you know, Google search itself has been rebuilt around AI and machine learning. So every almost every major technological use case, there's, I mean, very often some kind of AI component to it. But I think also, again, it's going to be an interesting year because I think um, if you've seen Fidelity now has set has announced the idea of a Bitcoin ETF with a fee of just around 0.39% and is waiting for SEC approval. So there's energy back. There's energy back 
in crypto, in Bitcoin, and everyone's trying to set this as a year. Bitcoin's held strong at like 45K right now. So, so I, I don't know. Do you think... Uh, do you think Bitcoin ends the year higher or lower than 46K? It's always, such a, it's always such a crapshoot to predict what the price of Bitcoin is going to be. But I do think that there's like looking at the fact that Bitcoin is, I am astonished that it's up to, it's like 43,000 today. I'm astonished it's back there. I thought it was over. You know, when it went down to 17,000, I was like, you know, see it, you'll never reach your, you know, the heights again. And then I, you know, so I was researching our segment for today and I was like, all right, screw it. I'll open my Coinbase app to see how much I'm down. And those numbers were green, baby. Like things look good. And it's going to make people like say, oh, this crypto thing, like I'm already getting FOMO for not having invested again at the depths. And I'm, I'm happy to be in, you know, in the positive numbers again. Um, but it is, it's very interesting that this thing just will not die. And it's about to be, like you mentioned, it's about to be traded through ETFs, which is going to bring mainstream investor, you would imagine, more mainstream investor interest in the app, in, in, the, um, you know, in the coin, especially as uh, it's had this surge. I mean, it's on the way up and it's going to be listed as an ETF. You know, that's, that's um, some serious momentum. So on one hand, I look at this Web3 thing with some skepticism. And on the other, I'm just like, well... As long as the price of, I mean, that's really what this has been about, right? As long as the price of Bitcoin is as high as it is, it's a little bit hard to dismiss. And maybe we will find use cases for this blockchain technology as long as the money is there, which will attract more investment and more development. See, this is where I disagree. I think, and I've, I've thought this for a long time, the Focus on price is what distracts from any utilization around the technology. And that's why maybe we could have had that use case, but because the focus on price was the core, it brought in the wrong people. They focused on the wrong things. And I actually think I'm shocked that the bit, or I guess the Bitcoin community, but the Web3 community from everything I've seen is like incredibly excited about the ETF. Because think about what an ETF does. It abstracts away the entire technology and just makes it a vehicle for speculation. And that that's literally what the definition is. It gives you exposure without having to touch the underlying asset. And that's exactly what I would think you should not want with this because the whole point is now you're getting focus on it again everyone getting involved casual investors their first exposure to this or maybe their fifth or sixth is through something that completely says the technology we don't care about that we only care about the price so i actually think the bitcoin etf idea is it's a negative for any potential web3 development serious application killer use case yeah, this is a good moment also to plug that I have uh, Albert Wegner, who is Fred Wilson's partner at Union Square Ventures, coming on the show next Wednesday. So I'm going to do that interview on Tuesday, and I'm definitely going to bring this up to him. It should be interesting. So look out for that in your feeds next Wednesday. Oh, we're, we're not done with crypto, folks, because as crypto rises, there will continue to be more and more ridiculous stories about the way that this technology or this speculation has been used to scam people. So we have two big stories, one we're going to end with, but the first let's talk about now because as I've gotten to know Ron John, one of the things I've learned is that whenever it comes to a big scam or confidence game or con, uh, 
this man lights up, and he dropped a story about pig butchering in, in our document this week, and I was just like, oh boy, this is going to be so exciting to talk about because this one is a fun, fun scam. Well, I think we're going to have to say, lose it while I am, my eyes are lit and I'm smiling because this is such a ridiculous story. It, 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 it there, it's, it's a serious one. So I just finished reading Number Goes Up by Zeke Fox, which honestly was one of the most fun business books I've read in a long time where it, it's written in kind of like almost like a mystery style travel the globe story format but the underlying business writing is very smart and very good. And so he's, his focus is on Tether, and we haven't really touched on it that much because I guess last year it wasn't quite the story it was in 21 and 22. But again, the stable coin that underlies so much of the entire crypto infrastructure, and then how Tether, and then kind of he goes through Tether through many cycles. And he even had interviewed SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, in person a number of times, covers that, covers the rise and fall of FTX. And in the end, Tether stays standing. And then obviously the question is, where is it being used? Other than pure speculation, why is it being used? And in that, he uncovers what are called pig butchering scams. And there's, I've seen more and more, the Wall Street Journal had a pretty big feature a month ago. CNN uh, had an article just this week. There's news out of Colorado in a, The Nation. There's a big piece. Um, but basically, it's the idea that, you know, you get, and I don't know, do, have you ever gotten those text messages from some unusually attractive, random looking female who's like, Hi. Oh, always. No, no, they're always yeah. real. Yeah, they're all, I guess, for Alex, they're always real. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but so what's funny is I actually myself, so the author, Zeke Fox, he he starts responding to it and takes them on this journey I'll quickly talk about, not to spoil too much from the book, but I had responded. Basically, you respond, they start kind of talking to you a little bit and try to flirt with you. And then next thing it's like, hey, I'm making, they tell you I'm making a lot of money in crypto and then potentially invite you to join a WhatsApp group where it moves further and then they start giving you tips. They start asking you to send money to to get, send Tether, the stable coin, to convert your money to Tether and then send that Tether to what are often either fake exchanges, fake web, like entire websites that look like an exchange. And so this is not only scamming many people out of, untold amounts of money and and you know like some numbers you hear there's like hundred million dollar scams uncovered 300 million dollar scams uncovered the other crazy part of this story is the people who are on the other side are often trafficked they're people who answer like an ad in their living and a lot of them are living in china and they go to cambodia or vietnam to work in a tourism agency or as a telemarketer and then literally are imprisoned in buildings where they cannot leave, they're abused, and they are forced to carry on these pig butchering scams. And the crazy part is, even from what little he sees, you understand there's potentially billions of dollars in this. Tether, the stablecoin company, just last month even froze $225 million of what they say they've uncovered a huge ring of pig butchering. So they're at least taking some stance around it. But the idea that in terms of what that killer use case has quietly been over the last six years 
it seems to be that there is at least a multi-billion dollar economy in scamming people in the West and then on the other side, people in a horrible situation being forced to to do this. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have used the word fun, but it is definitely, <laughs> it is revealing. Like it's it's a crazy, crazy story that does reveal so much of what crypto is being used for. And it's sad. And like it is, one of the things that these stories do is they bring home that there's like real people on the other end of this that are actually getting scammed and are losing money because of this stuff. And you wonder, like a lot of technology, there's a trade-off, right? We talked about this uh, this past week with Meredith Whitaker, that you have a new technology release, there's going to be some good and bad. Where does it land on net? I would argue most of it on net is positive. But when you hear these stories and you've heard them as people got cleaned out, as they've invested in FTX and in all these other different, and I feel like everybody who's like in the tech industry now knows at least within one degree of separation, someone who's lost a ton of money on a crypto scam and you start to wonder whether this stuff is actually you know a net positive or negative and it's really hard to argue that anything but the negative side at this point yeah and i think what was even more eye-opening for me is as a former trader relatively capitalist person the idea of all it's already bad enough people falling for a scam but then there's always the hey you getting into crypto was of your own accord, that's your fault. It was more the other side understanding it's not just the people losing the money, it's the people who are actually facilitating the scams that, that this is a massive part of how these operations work is an even more depressing part. But but in terms of people losing their money too, the book, do you remember Axie Infinity and Smooth oh, yes. Love Potion? Yeah. The Play to Earn Revolution, which I remember when mm -hmm. it was coming out. That was one of my biggest, I don't want to say eye roll moments, but just like, <laughs> come on, this, right. come on. Why not? Um, it's again, an eye roll moment. Why not? <laughs> yeah. The idea that people are going to lift themselves out of poverty by playing games. And again, he talks to a number of people who lost a lot, like took out loans, borrowed money to invest in making their own creatures in Axie Infinity to gather and gain smooth love potion tokens and then lost a lot of money. And the, again, it's not someone who has a bunch of money and lost a little bit. It's people who lose everything. So I think it, it's, it, it's, I don't know. It, it I've, it's surprising to me that those conversations are not bigger and we seem to just move on. Like even right now, Bitcoin, 45 K people are tweeting a lot. People are like, like yet those last few years are just glossed over. And I am totally. curious, I was surprised reading it that it wasn't a bigger story already, given the book came out a few months ago. But it, it's starting to be covered a little bit, but still not where it needs to be. So Andreessen Horowitz actually reached out and asked me if I wanted to interview Chris Dixon, who has a book coming out about Web3 and, and crypto, <clears throat> sorry, in the coming weeks. And of course, I'm interested in speaking with him. And then uh, they wrote back and said, listen, he's, uh, you know, He's now looking at some other shows, so we'll see. And it's like, Chris, Edward Andreessen Horowitz, if you're listening, come on and have the talk. Like, I understand this is not going to be an easy interview, uh, but just do it, right? Like, what's the point of being an advocate for this technology if you're not going to step up to the plate and talk about it with people who are going to ask you tough questions? So that's my public plea. I'll continue to work behind the scenes to bring this interview to folks. And if they decide not to do it, then... We're going to talk more about it because I do think that the boosters of this technology 
need to have frank conversations with people who may not agree with them. I, I think that's that's a fair thing. And, and again, the idea of more democratization around disrupting finance, especially in emerging markets and making payments easier across borders and instantaneous, all, all these things would be an incredibly positive good, but it has not happened yet. And, yeah, and maybe and should, it's happening more than we realize. Exactly. And for him to explain that, I, I would be happy to hear this. Yeah, as would I. And I think so would our audience. So I'll keep you all posted on that. All right, let's take a quick break and go from crypto to the Nazis on Substack and then fun finish with you know, some more uplifting stories or not even uplifting, but one really hilarious story that I cannot wait to talk about. Back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast uh, here with Ranjan Roy of Margins. Ranjan, we both write on Substack. Um, and Substack has had a bit of an issue with Nazis on the platform. Um, there, there was an Atlantic story that uncovered that Substack has a Nazi, you know, not even um, people that wink at Nazis, but full-fledged Nazis writing on the platform, making money on Substack. And it's a, it's a small amount of people, but they're there. And Substack refuses to either take them off or demonetize them. And it sort of gets to this, it's like an essential example of like, should online platforms be for free speech or you know should they take the, anything down and you know obviously this is protected speech it's not illegal to write this stuff in the u.s but should a tech platform be making money off of nazi writing and subject itself to or expose itself to the possibility that people reading work on their site uh, might go and then take i mean take violent action like nazism is a tradition with uh it's an ideological tradition that's associated with violence. You cannot separate the violence out. And so do you want to be the platform that people are going to read and potentially take action there? And even 8chan, if you watch the great documentary about QAnon, said, you know, basically got to the point where it's like we cannot host this ideology anymore because people are going out and shooting folks up after reading it. And Substack is standing behind it. It's pretty wild. They're basically like... We don't like Nazis either, either, but to censor this would be worse than allowing it to be up. I mean, I'm curious what, how you read this situation. To some people, it seems you know completely cut and dry. I mean, I'm, my newsletter is still on Substack, but I am not you know, confident in, in staying there. Uh, I curi I'm curious what you think. I am 
I've followed this for a long time. We were fairly early in starting margins on Substack, and I feel con it, it's very representative in an interesting way around just platforms versus publications. Substack is it's always been funny to me because Substack calls themselves a platform that supports free speech, yet they chose very specific authors to give large cash advances to and essentially chose and curated what showed up on the front page. And it was a publication very much in that sense, which means you have an editorial view and responsibility, but they will never take the, you know, the ownership of that. But by the same token, in terms of like platforms and content moderation, I always feel this is always a game and it's purely kind of being run in a, it's not done in an ethical way at all. It's purely in a capitalistic way of try to just deflect, try to just deflect and hope you can grow the business and raise the next round and potentially IPO or whatever else and keep growing. But I, I less from the ethical side, I'm actually just more confused what they mean and what they're trying to do from a business standpoint. Because Substack itself already took on kind of a specific branding, especially during the COVID years. And why would you want to dig further into that, especially when there's reporting they were having trouble raising additional rounds? They've raised a very, very expensive round of their last money. Like, so they have to grow. Why would they do this? I mean, do, do you think it's willful? Do you think it's just such a commitment to quote unquote free speech? I think that they realize that they're going to signal to a lot of their right-leaning authors that they are going to be willing to censor and they don't want to do that. But that's, I do not think this is smart. I do not think this is wise. I do not think this is well thought through. I've emailed with them a little bit in the background, completely off record. Um, so I'm not going to share what they said, uh, but I mean, I'll say it's like straight up that I'm fairly dismayed by this. It should be easy, right? Nazis making money on your product. You should not allow them to do that. Even like, again, it's not controversial. Even eight trend draws a line here. You know, it's crazy to continue to want to be in this type of business. And I think, you know, it's going to be maybe not the end of Substack, but like, it's going to meaningfully hurt this business and potentially lead to a spiral that leaves them on the, on the boundaries of the tech, tech world, on the margins, so to speak, but not those type, <laughs> on the fringes. And I think it's the, some of the dumbest business management I've ever seen in my life. And I'm, not, I'm like not in the like, I don't even think they need to take these people off the platform necessarily. I just think they shouldn't be able to make any money on the writing that they're doing. Well, I mean, YouTube wrote the playbook for everybody. <laughs> like, and again, I mean, in a very smart way and to their credit, thing keeps growing and going like YouTube wrote the playbook and the playbook is right there. So why you wouldn't take it? I mean, I guess at that point you do wonder in terms of like the free speech pilling in within like a closed well, they're community. Funded by again, Andreessen Horowitz. So that's probably part of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I don't know. I, I think this is going to be an interesting year for me with Substack, mm -hmm. less the Nazis, more the growth. Yeah, because, well, they're again, definitely this hurting is, the growth for sure. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The, the 2024 is going to be a year. I think that we'll be talking about this all year long where a lot of the 2021 and 2022 vintage hyped companies 
if they didn't realize those projections in 2023 that, you know, the rubber will meet the road. And I think, I, I actually think, I think we will be hearing more about Substack's business than mm-hmm. content moderation in the next like six yeah. months. Maybe this is a sign that they're quite desperate on the business front and they feel that they can't lose. But the other thing is that people are going to start, stop paying for Substacks if they continue to stand by us. Like, I, don't, I mean, we just went paid on big technology and I've definitely gotten notes from a couple of people saying, listen, I'm, I'm off a of Substack. I'm not going to pay anymore. And I, I, I guess I don't blame them. It's very, it's a very strange position to me for me to be in, right? Like I've had multiple family members that were killed in the Holocaust and like to have people, you know, unsubscribe to big technology because I'm on a platform that allows Nazis to make money. is just a very strange situation. So I guess like, I'm going to wait and see what they do. You know, it's very, very difficult to replicate the functionality, right? So it would be very tough for me to move, but I don't think it's completely out of the cards to think that big technology might go elsewhere if this keeps up. Anyway, <laughs> want to talk about Peloton? We already knew there was going to be no transition away from this. Stuff, there was but. no transition. We'd already discussed from pig butchering <laughs> to Nazis. Nazis so I'm going to come in and tell you about how Peloton, which is I, I never sold my bike. I said I was going to a few months ago. And I didn't end up selling it, so still, and I still pay for it. And the four dollars a month, I ride. Since nice. it's been cold, I've been riding again. Mm-hmm. And they've been making some updates, but it's still. It was my favorite pandemic company because I was a user for a few years beforehand, loved it. And then what they did during the pandemic thought was absurd. Again, once their stock went up over-promising, trying to release too many products, letting the core product degrade. So it's a company in a bit of desperation now. And they just announced a partnership with TikTok on Thursday where they're going to they're gonna have hashtag TikTok fitness powered by Peloton. Hmm. Within the platform, there's going to be a fitness space that you can go to and uh, try to get, take some fitness classes or watch some fitness videos. The thing that was interesting to me is this is a reminder. The question with all these companies, right, has always been, were they ever a tech company? Was WeWork a real estate company or a tech company? Was Peloton an exercise hardware company or a tech company slash like media company, basically digital? They're going all in. They're leaving the hardware behind and really trying to lean into streaming fitness, which is a very, very competitive space. So I think it's a move that reeks of a bit of desperation but again going back to actually to tie it into our last segment Mm -hmm. companies that were hyped in 2021 that are doing extreme things to try to remain relevant in 2024 i think peloton Peloton. going on tiktok and substack and nazis perhaps or free speech as you said i think we're going to see a lot more companies in that exact state do things that are kind of questionable or just try to lean in into the wrong business decisions because they have to do something. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm also a Pella fan. We had Emma Lovewell here, who's a Peloton instructor. It's one of our earliest interviews on the podcast. So Wait, you had Emma Lovewell? Oh, yeah. She was a 2020 interview, for sure. It was I, did super not, fun. I did not know this. Yeah. All right. Actually, one of my Emma, favorite interviews of my favorite, we've done on the show. And she's a great one of my instructor. my favorite instructors. Yep, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Wait, what was the, I guess, Peloton, the technology angle there? 
Yeah, we just talked about like what was it? What's it like to teach you know uh, fitness classes to fifty thousand people on the other side of your of your screen, you know, stadium size ride effectively um, without seeing any of them, and like what it's been like just experiencing the Peloton rise in the middle of COVID. So I also, I mean, I I had one as soon as they announced the lockdowns. I was like, or even beforehand, I went to Amazon and was like, exercise bike. Like, if I'm not going to be able to leave my apartment, I'm getting an exercise bike. And I got one of those, like, you know, cheap Chinese-made exercise bikes, and then I signed up to the Peloton app. And I used it for months through COVID. And it was, honestly, it was a savior for me. So, um, but yeah, it's been been interesting to see where this company has gone since then. Do they end up acquired by Apple? They've been saying that for a long time. And Apple, this, this is even more reason... I think it's confusing, again, why it's a bad business decision. Apple has its own pretty good, if not great, streaming fitness media content. They don't have hardware. So Peloton should just be tripling down that we are the best. And I think they are hardware company that also marries together software in a seamless, entertaining way, rather than we're yet another streaming fitness content platform. Because it makes it less attractive to Apple. Right. Okay, let's let's end with my favorite story of the week, which is that there was this... And by the way, I don't take joy in, in <laughs> these, these scams, but they are fun to read about. I guess it's like the true crime type of thing that is intriguing to me. But the, there was this uh, crypto company called Hyperverse, and they tried it out, this uh, chief executive officer, uh, Stephen Reese Lewis. And... The Guardian did this investigation, and this person was fake. So um, they, they uh, let's see. So they said, no records exist of Stephen Reese Lewis in the UK's company's register. Um, then he also uh, said he was at the University of Leeds and the University of Cambridge, and neither of those, comp- those universities have him in their databases. And he said that, um, he had sold a company to Adobe, and Adobe said there's no Stephen Reese Lewis. And he also said that he worked for Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs said they did not um, ever employ this person. And um, the, well, the craziest thing is is that this this crypto company, which again, you know, speaking of the neg- the overall negative impact of crypto, it took a, a lot of money from people and then didn't return it, and it had uh, these. These testimonials from Chuck Norris and Steve Wozniak, and um, just who endorsed this company Hyperverse that he was the leader of. So Chuck Norris said, um, under the leadership of CEO Stephen, Hyperverse will be the leader of the metaverse sp- of metaverse space. And Steve Wozniak says, I'm here to support Stephen and Hyperverse. I can't wait for the Hyperverse. And the story found out that both of these guys are on Cameo and basically wink winks at the fact that Hyperverse bought cameo endorsements from chuck norris and steve wozniak who gave them willingly for like a hundred bucks probably under dollars put them on the on the website and they're like oh all all of a sudden they look legit it's just the craziest story man i, I don't even know where it, to begin on this one i think we've had a pretty serious show for the last half i think this one this is the type of scamming and confidence game that does bring a full smile to my face because again it's not just crypto cameo is involved and the idea of it's brilliant if you think about it like 
Chuck Norris, here's a cameo, here's a hundred bucks, say exactly this, and then to put it on your website, mm-hmm. it's it's nuts. The thing also, <laughs> at, Steve Wozniak, why is yeah. he doing cameos? He has to have enough money. Even Chuck Norris, what do they get paid? Do do That's what's really struck out to me in this. Do they just enjoy it? Like why why is Steve Wozniak doing a cameo or Chuck Norris? They don't they're not George Santos. They don't need you know a couple of clips of a hundred dollars here or there. Well, I am I'm drawing complete blanks on this one, Ron John. What do you, what do you think the answer is? I don't maybe they just love they love the format. They love yeah. the cameo, just making the people happy. I guess so. I mean, if I was a if, if I was a billionaire, would I you know do shout outs on cameo for a hundred bucks each no you should do it for free donate to charity at least yeah maybe that maybe oh wait that's the idea cameo Mm -hmm. but people just do it for charity right and then the companies that order the cameos use that for scams so you it it could be this flywheel here where 2021 we would have raised some money already would have been great okay so you have a celebrity do a cameo that cameo is used for a crypto company that crypto company impoverishes people and those people are made whole by a charity that the cameo thing funds and it's beautiful saving the world technology <laughs> saving the world and that's why i'm a techno optimist ranjan thanks so much for joining us great talking to you as always all right good way to end there all right everybody Optimism. we're we're optimistic here just uh just gotta be creative all right everybody thank you for listening thank you ranjan for being here On Wednesday, as I mentioned, my interview with Union Square Ventures' Albert Wegner is going to be live. And then Ranjan and I will be back uh, next Friday, typical time. So we hope to see you there. And we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.